Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Jacob Wood. Dr. Wood writes often on nature and grace, especially with uh, respect to Henri de Lubac and Thomas Aquinas. And he has a new volume coming out with Catholic University Press, which will also discuss uh, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, um, who we've talked about occasionally in the podcast. Uh, But this conversation that we have is especially trying to talk about how the life of the farm uh, can be related to theology. And so we talk a little bit about his experience living on a farm in Ohio, uh, near where he is professor at the University of Steubenville, and what that experience has been like for him and his family. Um, So I hope you'll enjoy this foray into some slightly different topics than we normally cover on the podcast, uh, but something that is near and dear to to my own heart. Um, We thank you all for your ratings and reviews uh, and for any kind of comments that you give on the podcast on iTunes. Um, And so please do leave a rating and review if you you can. Um, Also, feel free to contact us on Facebook or on our website now at www.ahistoryofchristiantheology.com. Thanks for listening, and without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Jacob Wood. Um, so today I have with me uh, Dr. Uh, Jacob Wood, and do- uh, we've had Dr. Wood on the podcast before to talk about his uh, book, uh, To Stir a Restless Heart, Thomas Aquinas and Henri de Lubac on Nature, Grace, and the Desire for God. Um, and um, it was a very good conversation. It was m- much more academic, much more technical. Um, and But the one thing that it sort of deals with is this question of, of nature and then how, you know, how humans relate to our own nature and then how grace helps us acquire the desire for God um, and or helps us ach- arrive at um, and, and sort of this sort of thing. But I was uh, following him on Facebook and he released a, um, a, a sort of um, a very different kind of piece on his life on the farm um, and his turn to durable goods, as he calls them. So I've asked him to come on to talk about that. You also, though, sent me a one of your own essays that's going to be coming out in a larger volume. So could you tell me about the new volume that's coming out first? And then maybe we can kind of uh, chip away at this question of, OK, what does it look like for a theologian to turn to the farm? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So the new volume is a co-edited volume of essays on Aquinas and Baltazar. And as any believing Catholic theologian knows, um, these are two of the really shining lights of um, theologians looking to uh, study uh, the faith, but also to live their faith at the same time. The trouble is um, folks don't always see eye to eye. Thomas and (laughs) Baltazarians, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a sibling rivalry almost, although sometimes that rivalry turns into a bit of a melee pit, um, which we can joke about, but is actually not great for the public witness of the church, right? I mean, um, it, the, the, the sayings of the scriptures apply to theologians too, right? Um, <laughs> that will, they will know you by your love for one yeah. another. And, and sometimes we get into friendly banter. Other times we get into some pretty ugly, unfriendly arguments. And so, um, you know, St. Paul warns us against that kind of factionalism uh, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. And so the goal of this volume is to try to build a more ironic, peaceful relationship between Thomas and Baltazarians by bringing um, s- seven scholars from each side, if you will, together, each to talk about, a di- you know, pairs of essays on different topics. So my own contribution is in theological anthropology. And when I was 
beginning to think about how I was going to approach that essay, I thought, well, when we're talking about knowing human nature and Thomas and Baltazarians, the the, the elephant in the room is the doctrine of analogy. Mm -hmm. So I started working on the doctrine of analogy in Aquinas and trying to figure out how I could connect that up with a theological doctrine, because one of the big arguments between Thomas and Baltazarians on the question of analogy is, does analogy start in philosophy or does analogy start in theology? And so as a, as a Thomist myself, I was looking to see, well, is there a theological setting that we could discuss analogy in and kind of go from there to kind of build a pathway, build a bridge? And what I found in Aquinas' writing was that it was connected up, um, that Aquinas actually connects up the doctrine of analogy uh, with the doctrine of creation. And so that got me thinking about the doctrine of creation, the relationship between creation and analogy. And I realized, wait a second, this is like the life I'm trying to live here, right? It's this <laughs> life of, of trying to um, raise up the whole of the natural world into the knowledge and love of God through analogy. Mm. Mm. Um, and so I have a friend in psychology here, um, my colleague, who says, you know, research is me-search. Right. And, and, I, and, I, and this keeps happening. Like I unwittingly stumbled upon this whole theological exploration in the Middle Ages of the life I was trying to live. Uh, and so that ended up building upon some of the things I had been thinking about in this essay I wrote for public discourse about life on the farm. Very good. Well, um, there's a lot of stuff in what you have just said for the introduction. Um, as far as like my podcast is concerned, we haven't done very much on Balthazar. We've maybe occasionally mentioned the name Bart. Um, so Bart and Balthazar sometimes kind of go together, but we've not we've really not tackled the doctrine of analogy at all. Can you can you say mm. something quickly uh, about? I mean, so even even as I said that, I was like, I can't believe this phrase is coming out of my mouth. I I, I mean, we I tried to read uh, what is it, Shavara with. Uh, um, with Grant Kaplan here at SLU. And well, I, I mean, I read it. I don't know how much I understood. Uh, but, uh, you know, so the Analogia Entis and all of this. Um, but um, yeah, so like, what are we uh, in, in some, in some sense, I don't know, any way that you can give us a kind of purchase on what we're talking about when we're talking about the doctrine of analogy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's try this. Um, so basically from step one, um, we human beings are finite and God is infinite, right? So in, in the infinitude of divine being, God transcends our finite concepts and he transcends our finite ideas and our finite speech. So the question in the doctrine of analogy is how do we address, how do we talk about God at all? And there are mm -hmm. sort of two poles within which we can, we can move as Aquinas sets them out in the cream of Mars. There's univocity, which means that when I, when I speak about God, I'm speaking about, I'm using words that I draw from creation and I'm using them in exactly the same way to mean exactly the same thing. And there's equivocity, which is the polar opposite, that I still draw my words from creation, but when I talk about God, I mean something completely different. Mm -hmm. The trouble with those two poles is that on the one hand, when I, if, if we're engaging in univocity, we run the risk of sub, subjecting God to creaturely, con, con, excuse me, to creaturely um, 
uh, ideas and creaturely being. And so God ends up not transcending creaturely being at all, at least in our minds. The danger with univocity is that we actually end up not saying anything about God at all. Mm. So the classic, you know, classic teaching example, not classic as in like going back to the Middle Ages, would be like the word good, right? Mm. So I, you know, donuts are good. I love donuts, right? And God is good and I love God. So do I mean this, you know, if if it was univocity, I would be saying God is good in exactly the same way that a donut is good, which that can't mm-hmm. possibly be true because I'm not saying that like God tastes good with sprinkles on top. Um, but if I was engaging in complete equivocity, I would be, when I say God is good, what I would really mean is that God is and a donut is good. But I have mm-hmm. no idea what it means to say that God is good. Mm-hmm. And so in the Middle Ages, um, there were some very, very serious discussions about this and a kind of hashing out of the doctrine of analogy in the 12th and 13th centuries. Um, and it, it, it took place heavily under the influence of Pseudo-Dionysius. Mm. And um, in the divine name, Pseudo-Dionysius kind of lays out three ways that we can go about speaking about God. Um, one is the via negativa, the negative way. There's our apophaticism. One is the via causalitatis. Um, so, so speaking of God as creator of, of the things that we find around us, um, and one is the via eminentia, speaking as God, speaking of God as kind of super eminently above all the things that he uh, has created. And, um, you know, I should probably just stop there before I go any <laughs> further, because if you tread any further, you wade into a minefield. Right. Right. But so the, basically the doctrine of analogy is about sorting out that um, that bag of questions about how we speak about God and how we how we do that without. Uh, lapsing into univocity and subjecting God to creatures or equivocity and cutting off our ability to speak or think about God at all. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, no, it's very, very helpful. It reminds me, uh, I had a professor in my MDiv who was a Bartian, but he would always use this phrase that he kind of uh, coined, um, but but from uh, Irenaeus, God is like light, but unlike any light that we know. Um, so mm. he tried he tried to straddle it kind of uh, by by going that direction. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was just one thing that came to take, came to mind right away. Yeah, for sure. So um, you know, one, one of the biggest uh, challenges in the doctrine of analogy, um, and I'll take this phrase from uh, Alan Torrance that I had the mm-hmm. privilege, a Bartian uh, scholar, mm-hmm. who I had the privilege of taking theology 101 with back in the day. Mm-hmm. And he would always speak of the direction of the pressure of interpretation. Like, mm-hmm. which way is is that pressure moving? If we imagine like a set of plumbing, right? Mm-hmm. Is it because the, the, the danger or the worry about the doctrine of analogy um, in Bart and 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 Barthians in general, and then also um, and in many Baltazarians as well, is this question of, well, are we imposing our ideas, our mm-hmm. concepts, our limitations mm-hmm. on God, or are we allowing God to reveal Himself to us as He is? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the one of the challenges there is to kind of sort out the, the, the extent to which you can, you can have God revealing himself in the created order mm. without lapsing into a kind of fideism, right? Um, and still preserving this idea that God can be naturally known, which um, it speaks of, and St. Paul speaks of in Romans one twenty, and the First Vatican Council actually defines as a dogma of the Catholic faith, right? That, yeah. um, 
that God can be naturally known is a dogma of the faith. It's kind of ironic. Yep. There you have it, right? <laughs> um, so that's where that's how I ended up actually in the doctrine of creation. Yeah. Because what I found was that the medieval theologians, whereas obviously they had a very robust understanding of revelation, properly speaking, in scripture and tradition, they also have this equally robust understanding of the way in which God actually chooses to give himself to be known through creation, mm-hmm. which is a little bit different than saying, I'm walking around in creation and I find stuff and I draw ideas from this and I impose those ideas on God. If God actually wills himself to be known to an extent or in a particular way in creation, then I'm not imposing my ideas on God when I know him analogically through it, even if I'm doing that in a kind of philosophical manner. I'm actually doing what God wills to be done with creation. Mm-hmm. And that, I would say, is probably the biggest theological insight that the medievals bring to this whole question of analogy. But it's often lost in the contemporary debate when we're going back and forth between, say, Balthasarians who, or Barthians um, who are concerned about you know, our imposing ideas on God and Thomas who are saying, no, 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 it works philosophically like this. Let me just show you how the doctrine of analogy works. See? <laughs> Yeah, well, and you begin your essay that's going to be in this volume kind of uh, like uh, setting out the debate over Christ um, and and how this revelation works about who, who Christ is um, and, and then kind of turn it to this, uh, say, what can we learn from creation? And I like this phrase from Matthew Levering. You talk about uh, where he's uh, where I guess it's kind of a um, um, – uh, paraphrase, but uh, creation itself is theophanic. Um, so Absolutely. as a way to as a way of kind of describing what you just said there uh, about how looking into the world, you can see what God desires that you know about God through creation. Um, but so I like that phrase, um, and it made me wonder. Uh, in your other article, you talk about the mm. uh, the pig um, and the pig roast, and you co- <laughs> cooked it in the fire of uh, of a peach peach wood, or, or sorry, smoked it in um, in peach wood, and you said it was it was unlike any other uh, pork or bacon that you'd ever had. So is that yes. theophanic? Is that God <laughs> telling God, you it know, you're be. learning something there? Well, yes, actually. Um, but, you know, there's a there's sort of tongue-in-cheek way, which is theophanic, yeah. <laughs> because it's literally out of this world. Um, but there's also a more serious way, right? Okay. So the, the, the insight that I gathered from Aquinas and from the medievals more generally is that um, creation isn't just there as something for us to use as we as we want to or as we need it's that god has a purpose for creation Mm. and the purpose of creation is to participate in the knowledge and love of him except that all the material creation around us can't know and love god on its own it doesn't have an intellect with which to do it in Mm. fact in all of creation only human beings have both an intellect and a will and a material component as well. We have a body, which means that unlike the angels, we're this kind of linchpin, we're this hinge around mm. which you know the, the perfection of the entire material order depends. Because God wills for, that, for the material creation to know and love him, but it can only do that if it participates in our knowing and loving mm. God. And when we know and love God through creation, we fulfill God's will for creation and for ourselves. 
um, by drawing it up into a participation and are knowing it all. Um, and that can be applied to creation in so many different ways. I mean, in the most like explicit and obvious way, right? It would be like in the sacraments, okay? We take water or we take even bread and wine as the most poignant example. And it's transubstantiated into the body and blood of Jesus. So there's creation being taken from the passion of God. Um, but it radiates outward from that, right? I mean, anytime we do anything where we know and love God through creation, it offers us an opportunity to give this gift to creation of knowing mm. and loving God. So it mm. could be something as simple as going on a hike, you know, mm. and praising God for the, for the beauty around you. But it can also be something, you know, sort of between those poles, like in your domestic church, in your mm. family, doing things that build up your family and build up the knowledge and love of God among your family. So this peach would smoke bacon that I talk about in the, in the public discourse article. I mean, we grew the trees together. We pruned the trees together. We raised the pig together. We butchered the pig together. We smoked the bacon together. And so all of, all of these things were done in the love of our family. Yes. And the love of the world around us. Yes. But all of that illumined by the love of God among us. Mm. And so, um, in a really, you know, profound way, the, the 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 glory the earthly glory of this peachwood smoked bacon which still makes my mouth water thinking about it right now <laughs> um you know is 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 evocative of um a, a much deeper sense of the way in which creation and working with creation can build up the love of god around us and yes it leads to the, you know, the, when we when we live this way, it leads to this perfection of creation around us. That when it participates in the knowledge and love of God, great things are made. Mm. So you could think of like the medievals, like what? How did they perfect creation? They built these beautiful churches that still stand today. Many of them, you know, um, and and just marvelous examples of Gothic architecture. So I was talking about you know how this way of approaching creation was really hashed out in the 12th and 13th centuries. Well. Notre Dame de Paris. I mean, you know, notwithstanding the horrendous fire that it suffered, and thank mm. God they're rebuilding, um, has been standing since the mid 12th century. They built this church in the middle of hashing out that doctrine, and I don't think that that's accident. And and any time we're thinking about this way in creation, we can't help but approach it in that kind of perfective way, and we build and make beautiful and glorious things and these beautiful and glorious things evoke for us the beauty and wonder of god and are drawn up into our praise of him and our love of him mm. yeah very well said um it's it's kind of interesting you know just like we started off this conversation i was trying to tie it to this this sort of article where you are kind of more academically delving into the distinctions and these sort of camps and it can feel very uh you know um, what's the word like, you know, abstract or uh, it can feel very um, kind of in your own head. Uh, but it's interesting that for you, um, it's to some extent the, the, that it's not divorced at all from reality, from reality, um, which actually, yeah. as I use that word, I hate that word. Um, it's not divorced <laughs> at all from creation. Let me say that uh, because I'm yeah, not actually sure. sure that creation is reality in the strictest sense. Um, but um, 
but yeah, but you you know, it, we might think that that Aquinas could seem like a guy who was divorced uh, from living in his body. Um, like if you just mm-hmm. read a lot of the Summa Theologica or something, you might think, well, man, does this guy ever just go out and eat a good piece of bacon? Um, and, <laughs> and 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 so what you're trying to say, it seems like, is that that's absolutely not the case. It's almost the inverse. Like these people were very aware of living in their bodies and very aware. Uh, you know, Aquinas is very aware and the the sort of the even these. Uh, medieval debates they're they're actually working out these theological um ideas in concert with how they how they lived in the world yeah that that is that is very well said um you know okay so first up aquinas it's true that he had like if you read white staples book on aquinas um mm, you know terrell is the standard well terrell is the standard reference text now on aquinas um, I have a, a friend and colleague, um, uh, Brian Carl, down at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, who points out, I think very correctly, that though it's it, Terrell's really like a compliment to Weisheifel. Um, mm. he, he updates the scholarship, but the story, the real like story of Aquinas is still in Weisheifel, and Weisheifel is the one that gives you all the tidbits from the hagiography. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, Weisheifel gives us to understand that Aquinas was led a very abstracted life Mm. um you know he could enter into these long periods of abstract thought and contemplation to the point that he didn't even realize what was going on around him in some pretty hilarious ways um but you know if you when you read aquinas's works carefully these little bits of appreciation for creation i mean there's the abstract stuff but there's also the very concrete stuff um i'll I'll read you an example actually and Mm. this is from the summa tertia pars Question 72, Article 2. Um, and it's this question on sacrama- uh, confirmation, excuse me, and whether chrism is fitting matter uh, for the sacrament. And the third objection says, further, oil is used as the matter of this sacrament for the purpose of anointing, but any oil will do for anointing, for instance, oil made from nuts and from anything else. Therefore, not only olive oil should be used for this sacrament. And Aquinas responds, and bear in mind, Aquinas was Italian. Uh, by birth. These properties of oil, by reason of which it symbolizes the Holy Spirit, are to be found in olive oil rather than in any other oil. In fact, the olive tree itself, though being an evergreen, signifies the refreshing and merciful operation of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, this oil, that's olive oil, is called oil properly and is very much in use wherever it is to be had. And whatever other liquid is so called, that is called oil, derives its name from its likeness to this oil, (laughs) <laughs> Nor are the latter commonly used unless it be the supply for the want of olive oil. Therefore, it is that this oil alone is used for this and certain other sacraments. <laughs> so we were joking, talking about before about like, you know, things that are just out of this world good. Aquinas considers olive oil to be so fragrant, so delicious that he, he treats it in relation to other oils like the primary analogous. <laughs> that all yep. other oil is called oil in reference to olive oil because olive oil is just so good. <laughs> and, you know, okay, so here's a man who obviously spent a lot of time in abstraction, a lot of time fasting, but, it, you know, deep down inside somewhere, you can you can take the Italian out of Italy, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you can't take you can't take the love of olive oil out of the Italian because he has That's this right. deep appreciation, this deep understanding of olive trees, olive oil, and and so on and so forth. And he relates that very poignantly 
to the holy to the grace of the holy spirit yeah that's that's really good i i like it um well so could you you know this might get a little more autobiographical uh but how long have you been living on your farm and i mean we're seeing one way i think it sounds like very concretely which this is kind of uh, well this is in the background of the the article on on uh on the doctrine of creation um and it's very in the forefront in your article from the public discourse uh but yeah could you just say like how long have you been living on the farm and any other ways in which you found that you know either that work complements your academic work or are there times in which you you feel pulled in one direction or the other like you know either why am i on the farm uh because i've got so much writing to do and teaching to do or maybe why am i doing this writing and teaching i've got so much work to do on the farm Oh my gosh. Yes. So we've been there for seven years. Okay. And we've done it, you know, baptism by fire for sure. Um, I grew up, uh, as I mentioned, about five miles from Manhattan. So this was not my everyday experience. I mean, when we got to our farm, our old, you know, 19th century farmhouse, I didn't even know how to change a lock. And I, 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 I always had a black thumb. And I had plenty of pets growing up, but never any farm animals. So we just kind of jumped into it. And it's interesting. You talk about living like what you're talking about. You know, when you get out there and you start doing this, you realize that sometimes there can be like a total disconnect between those two things. Mm -hmm. So I can sit here and I can talk about creation and I'm enjoying, um, you know, this comfortable environment here where I've got my coffee and my coffee maker over there. You can't see it off camera. I have all my books around me and the air conditioning is blasting and it feels <laughs> wonderful. Okay. Like I'm good. I'm comfortable. Great. Um, okay. Now let's step outside where it's approaching 80 degrees. I think it's going to be about 86 today. And um, let's go work out in the garden where there are no trees. There is no shade um, where you're going to sweat and you're going to toil and it's not going to feel good. And in fact, Genesis three tells you explicitly yeah, that right. because of the fall, this is going to feel bad. It's going to be hard. Um, but it's also, it's also in a way going to be redemptive. And you realize that sometimes in, you know, when we, when we lead, when we lead a more um, academic life, as I, as I obviously do, um, we can become disconnected from the world around us. Um, now the thing is every time we go to the supermarket though, there is someone who is not disconnected from the world around us or we wouldn't have food. Right. <laughs> we would just simply not eat unless somebody grew that food and somebody was, 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 was forging that connection. And so what we found early on was that it can be, you know, it can be a lot of hard work, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to, to reconnect those dots in your own life between, mm-hmm. you know, just the ordinary every daily, gr- every day, daily grind in the office and the natural world. Um, when we've become unaccustomed to it, and yet the, the the mutual enrichment of these two is profound. So we've talked a, a bit of already today about how you know a theological approach, um, theological understanding of the doctrine of creation in the Middle Ages kind of like informs the work that I do uh, on the farm. But let's talk the other way for a minute about how mm. what goes on there can inform theologizing. I mean, first of all, for just a great place to think about um about about theology a great place to contemplate god um you uh, um 
now, okay, so uh, for uh, for the podcast listeners, we we did just have a little technical difficulty. So I'm going to ask Jacob to uh, to restate this. So he's just talking about the way that theology theology has informed his uh, work on the farm. But he he had just said that he was going to tell us a little bit more about how this farm life uh, could yeah. uh, help him understand his theology or inform the way that he does theology. Yeah, definitely both, actually. So first, just in terms of you know general theologizing. Um, you know, theology is the pursuit of Christ as wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as we know, uh, to pursue any kind of human perfection requires virtue. And when you're sitting here in the office doing the daily grind, it's actually easy to get into some really unvirtuous habits, right? So you're sitting in front of your computer and what do you got in front of you? You got, you got instant messaging, you have social media, you have the news, you have online shopping, you have really everything is there ready to distract you from the life of the mind and the life of the spirit. So some of my best theologizing has been uh, standing outside at a stump of wood, splitting firewood to heat our home <laughs> with our wood burning furnace. There's no distractions there. It's just, right. a, it's, just an, it's just an opportunity to focus and peace and quiet. There's no social media. There's no smartphones. There's no nothing. There's just an opportunity to think clearly, um, to engage in those intellectual virtues, and also to focus on the life of the mind and the life of the spirit. Um, so sometimes just even being in that setting can help pare down the modern distractions that 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 invite us to unvirtuous habits um, when we when we should be engaging in the life of the mind and the life of the spirit. Um, but even more profound, I think, has been. Um, Coming to understand our relationship to creation and the doctrine of analogy by understanding a little bit more about what farming entails. Now, if you look mm. at the gospel, our Lord is always using farming metaphors. And I feel like, I know for myself growing up, I approached those farming metaphors like I approached children's literature, which is also usually drawn from the life of the farm, uh, but I had no idea what any of it meant. I was just like, oh, there's a cute chicken or a cute bunny <laughs> rabbit or horse or whatever. Um, uh, but I was I was learning about um, grazing animals from a local mm. farmer, and um, she was pointing out that in you know there's a there's a kind of ordered perfection that comes about through using grazing animals. And here's how it works: you have a field, okay? The field is full of grass and weeds, um, and it just kind of grows up into wildflowers and weeds, and that's fine. And, and and, and great, but you can't really do anything with a field that's overgrown and, and grass and weeds. Um, you definitely cannot produce any human edible food from it unless like some kind of edible weed would happen to, happen to grow there. Otherwise, it's just kind of, um, it's pretty in itself, but kind of wasted space. So what, what can you do? Well, you can put a grazing animal on that, on that field and a grazing animal can eat grass or brush depending on the species. Um, and then they turn it into something you can't eat, whether it's milk or whether it's meat. Okay, that's interesting. So already we're starting to see like there's a transformation occurring, a kind of connecting up of us with that particular plot of land and a transformation by which that plot of land is raised up to our use. Okay, that's great. Except that there's a problem. Grazing animals in themselves tend not to do a great job of uh, <laughs> field management, right? Um, goats are a wonderful example of this. Um, I mean, I know in scripture, they're like a symbol of the reprobate. It's because they have quite (laughs) phenomenally ornery temperament and they're wild and crazy. Um, but here's what they do. When you put them in a field, 
they eat the things they like best and they eat them all. And it's kind of like, you know, if you were just like turned loose at a buffet, what would you do? Right. I said, well, what any yeah. of us do, it's like, oh, I'm going to go get all the things I like. Right. Okay. So you eat all the things you like and then those are all gone, but you're still hungry. So what do you do? Well, you eat the things you like second best. And that's what goats do. And they do all that and they eat all those. So they end up actually destroying all the things that they like. And the things that they like, by the way, are the things that are best for them. So they destroy all those things. And then all that grows in their place are all the things that they don't like and aren't particularly good for them. So you start out trying to put this animal in this field because you want to draw, you want to connect the field up with you and raise it up to a higher perfection, but you actually just destroyed it. Oops. What are you going to, how are you going to fix that problem? The answer is rotational grazing. Hmm. So you, you enclose the animal, you give it some structure and, 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 and you seem to take away a little bit of its freedom, but actually what you end up doing is perfecting the animal and the field at the same time. So you enclose the animal in a smaller space and you have it stripped down all the all the vegetation in that space then you move the pen that the animal is in over to the next space and then they strip down that space and you go all the way around the paddock or field um until the first area has grown back again and then you put them in that area again and what that does is it preserves the variety of vegetation in the field and makes sure that the animal itself gets a variety of of, of vegetation healthy variety of vegetation um and so the the field um it doesn't just turn into some horrible weeds. The animal gets well-nourished and then the animal can turn the field into some, into a useful product for a human being. Um, and so the, the field is perfected. The animal is perfected. The human being is perfected. The whole of that area of creation ends up being perfected by a human being imposing order through the animal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's a reaching down from the human being to offer a higher perfection to the lower creation. And then there is the lower creation itself being drawn up into this higher perfection. And what is that? If not the whole Dionysian hierarchy mm. from that's, that's described in the celestial hierarchy by names, right? This, this is what pseudo Dionysius is talking about. This is what the medievals are looking at. And this is what we've become disconnected from. Mm. But, I think there's a profound sense in which this is exactly what God intends for us to do. What does it mean to till and keep the garden, if not to confer a perfection upon the garden so that the garden can be raised up to a higher level, but also offer us its fruits and its gifts. Mm -hmm. um, and sure, after the fall, there is a lot of blood, sweat, and tears associated in that. That's that's just the nature of the fall. But there's also this, this deep redemptive opportunity that if we offer that blood, sweat, and tears up to God, if we engage in that toil and that labor, that we can become participants in the perfecting of the world around us. And it also has a perfective effect on ourselves as well. So I never understood the Dionysian hierarchy of being so well until I started <laughs> rotationally grazing goats in the field outside my house. Yeah, well, and, and my, my similar example, although much smaller, is I was reading uh, Wendell Berry's, um, oh, what is it, the un, oh, I can't, no, I can't, no, I can't the, the name's just uh, escaping me, um, 
Oh, well, it's anyway, it's one of his essays, uh, Unculturing of America, maybe, or something like that. Uh, but anyway, he talks about the sort of the threefold pattern of uh, production uh, of like of growing something, of cons- of eating something, but then returning um, what yes. you've eaten. Um, and so, you know, he, he basically talks about uh, how in, in American life, you know, we've, we've so separated ourselves from the farm um, yeah. that we consume things in our house and then we think there's waste that just has to go somewhere else. Um, And we don't even really consider uh, that, you know, sort of composting or like we have chickens in our little small, you know, like we have a small plot of land, we have chickens. And so like when we cut up the leftovers from our dinner um, or anything that my kids don't eat, uh, they can go back to the chickens um, or they can go into a compost bin. Um, And so then the chickens will lay us some eggs. And so there's a cyclical and sort of uh, there's a reciprocity um, amongst are living together i mean just again it's a very small way we we still shop at grocery stores and other things but at least in that one respect um we've had a much better understanding of how all of these things can work in concert um rather than 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 work kind of against one another um which is you know that's kind of barry's point is that it seems like uh, the modern world has forced all these things to work against each other uh, rather than work together oh for sure 100 percent. so you brought up the example of chickens, and I'll just I'll just throw in the example of pigs as well. Um, <laughs> just like chickens, only bigger in this respect that um, you know every time you think about scraping that plate of food into the trash, you know. And look, I have six children. Okay, so they can waste a lot of food if they don't like dinner <laughs> or they're feeling a little unwell that evening. Like that's normal. But what's also normal is not to throw that food in the trash. Yeah. But to, as you put it, to recycle that food into other food. So when we first got pigs, it would, you know, we would sit there and you'd, you'd be faced with this extra food that was maybe could otherwise be wasted. I mean, maybe it could also be composted. Okay. But then you think, well, what can we do with this? Well, we can make bacon with this. And what we mean by <laughs> that is I can go out tonight when I do the chores and I can throw that in the pig trough and the pigs will eat it and they will be nourished. I mean, there's folks around, if, if you have like a good connection, you know, good, if you have like dairy, for example, um, you can take the dairy and you can feed it to the pigs. If, you know, mm. or if there's a brewery around, you know, oftentimes like spent grain uh, will be will be fed to cows. Um, so there's lots of ways in which, yeah, absolutely things that would ordinarily just get thrown out can definitely be recycled and turned into food. And so the amount of waste shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. Now, there's one other thing I want to say, though, hmm. which is that we can also it, I think it also helps if we're realistic, like folks who 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 want to who want to get reconnected with the land i think sometimes we feel bad like if we don't do enough like so i had mm. i remember one time having this conversation about um homesteading and somebody heard i was homesteading They're like oh are you off the grid and i said no definitely <laughs> not yeah totally respect that but i think we also have to be be realistic about the you know what what are what is our own state in life what are our own demands you know i'm a yeah. university professor I'm not going to be a full-time farmer because that's not what God has called me to be. And that's okay. I'm just trying to do the best that I can to kind of reconnect with um, the book of nature, as St. Bonaventure calls it, alongside the book of scripture. And these two things have to fit together. I'm not going to abandon the theological work that God has called me to do 
um, to farm. Although, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. that tension, yeah, sometimes it feels like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do over in the farming, or so, oh, there's so much to do at work, I, I'm going to end up neglecting this thing. And that you have to find a kind of balance. Um, you know, and sometimes when I talk to people, they're like, oh, well, I only do, I only have a garden, or I only have mm -hmm. some chickens, or my garden's only so big. It's like, well, you know, compared to other people, my garden's only so big. Compared to other people, <laughs> right. my flock of chickens is only, you know, is, is small. It's like, there's, I have another friend who says, you know, there's as many goals as there are families, mm. right? Because each, each one of us has to discern, you know, what works with what God has called us to. I don't mm. think there's anybody on the planet who could say they could live a life completely disconnected from nature um, yeah. and from the natural world. Um, what are you going to live in a bubble somewhere? I mean, <laughs> uh, like I said before, so otherwise somebody is, is forging this connection on your behalf to the extent yeah. that you lead a life that's disconnected to it. But that doesn't mean we all have to become sustenance farmers. Either. Um, you know, people I think can glorify that life and it is a beautiful thing. And I am just floored by the people I see doing this. I have nothing but the utmost respect. Um, and, and I feel humbled before them. Um, but on the, on the other hand, I mean, to remember um you know that is a very that is a full-time life right mm. you can be a sustenance farmer if that's what god is calling you to do go for it um but you will spend all of your time doing that and and remember that um you know traditionally farming is not a nine to five job you can't look at god and say well it's break time god um and god looks at you and says well um the peas need to be weeded Right. I yeah. mean, farming is a, is a sunup to sundown kind of thing. And sometimes after sundown. So we should just yeah. be mindful of, you know, trying to find a good balance within, you know, the life that um, the life that God has uh, God has called us to. We don't all need to jump off the grid. So that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> um, but what I think the real goal is is to be is to reconnect with the book of nature. However, God is calling us to do that so that in our state in life, we can you know, in whatever way he calls us to um, enter into the perfection of ourselves and of the world around us by knowing and loving him. Um, we don't want to abandon the work that he's called us to just, just raise it up to a higher perfection. Mm. Yeah. So do you find uh, that there's a, uh, well, I, I, I'll, I'll just say it this way. I have been struck um, at, so I teach at Kendrick Glennon Seminary, some uh, like uh, some Latin and Greek for them. Um, and when I first started teaching there a few years ago, I, I was like surprised at how many uh, men come to the seminary from farms um, and from farm families from around mm -hmm. the Midwest, primarily Missouri, but, you know, sometimes North Dakota, South Dakota, a few different places. Um mm -hmm. And I think I was surprised by that because I was at a Protestant seminary in New Jersey, um, a historically Protestant seminary, uh, Princeton Seminary. Um, yeah, and, New Jersey. <laughs> and Shout out I, to my home state. There you go. Yeah, I lived there for three years. The Garden State. I didn't know why it was called that, but uh, it is like it, it's beautiful in places. It's it really is. Uh, but yeah. I I'm glad I'm I mean. I'm also glad I don't live there full time, but that's another. <laughs> uh, yeah, me but, too, but, but go on. <laughs> um, but I was just, you know, in a lot of the Protestant seminaries that I was aware of, almost nobody was coming from the farms. Um, mm. And and so I, I just wonder, like, what uh, what does that, does that say something about like a connection? So you, you, you use the phrase the Catholic land movement. Um, is there something about yeah. the Catholic faith or your understanding of your own faith, which which sort of, mm -hmm. I don't know, somehow Catholicism actually seems to connect more deeply to the land in your experience. 
I, I quoted Wendell yes. Berry. He's Baptist, but you know, take that for what it, for, for what you will. But um, but yeah, I don't sure. know. Go, uh, yeah. No, there's a lot of Catholic Wendell Berry fans for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, I think I think the answer to your question though is is absolutely, and it it has to do with the I think two things: the Catholic understanding of mediation, and the mm. Catholic understanding of grace. So um, Catholics believe that, you know, grace heals our human nature and makes us participants in the work, active participants and cooperants in the work of God. And we tend to think of that like when we're doing RCIA or something, obviously we're going to focus on how we cooperate in God's work in our own lives. But there is this much deeper tradition of cooperating in God's work over the entirety of creation, that humanity's participation in providence, like, Working on ourselves is just the first step. It actually encompasses the entire cosmos around us. Now, in the in the Western theological tradition, you know, some the place that we used to focus on that was in sacramental theology. Mm. So, if you look at somebody like you of Saint Victor, you know, the reflection on the sacraments um, just branches out in reflection to sacramentals and the entirety of the cosmic order being sacramental. Um, but that kind of got lost along the way somewhere. And so we focus on the sacraments as these, like, sometimes we, we focus on the sacraments as these individual discrete events, but we lose the connection with the broader creation. Whereas in the, um, sometimes they, that gets preserved a little more clearly in the Eastern Catholic tradition. Mm. Um, you know, think about drawing on the Eastern fathers, like, um, St. Maximus the Confessor. It has this very, uh, this very keen understanding of, like, Christ as the center of creation and man as a microcosm of the, the macrocosmos and the entirety of the mm-hmm. cosmos, finding its perfection in man and specifically in the human nature of Jesus Christ. So there's this participative element to Catholicism whereby, you know, we don't just participate in the perfection of ourselves, but we participate in the perfection of the entirety of the world around us. And actually, um, you know, that, in, in the West, I think the, the greatest reviver of that understanding of the cosmos is actually Pope Francis. Mm. Now, Pope Francis, I know at times, can be a divisive figure in theological <laughs> circles, right? Um, and I'm not looking to go there now. Um, but let me just say this. If you take a look at the encyclical Laudato Si, and you read past the comments about air conditioning, which is, I think, where a lot of people stop. Okay, I don't want to talk about air conditioning. I love air conditioning, okay? But if you read to the end of Laudato Z, it's amazing because he actually revives this medieval cosmology that, that I've mm. been talking about. And he cites, he, now he's, he's looking at uh, reading through the lens of uh, St. Bonaventure, uh, mm. right? Um, who very who, who gives us this language of the book of nature alongside the book of scripture. And if you look in the footnotes, he's citing the Bonaventurian text directly. Mm-hmm. And so we get in these fights about like policy and air conditioning. But if we could put those to one side for just a moment, like here's the Holy Father offering us a revival of medieval cosmology which is deeply um, integrated into the Catholic tradition as a whole, East and West, and inviting us to inviting us to enter into that understanding of creation again. And so, yes, okay, 
we have our arguments about the air conditioning, but if we can get beyond those, there's something much deeper in the logic of Catholicism that invites us to interact with creation in this way. And when we understand our mediatory role in the perfection of creation, it's much easier, I think, even if we only understand that intuitively on the farm, to enter into a mediatory role in the priesthood. Because as the Orthodox theologian John Cazulus tell, uh, you know, tells us, like Adam and Eve were intended to be priests of creation in the garden. Mm. And so, it, and, and I think that's true. And so living on the farm helps you to understand that the priesthood of the baptized as, a, as um, applied to the whole of creation, and it's, it, it's so intuitive to move from that into the priesthood of holy orders. It, it's just a moving up of the sacramental ladder um, mm. in the ultimate ascent to God. Yeah, it's uh, I, somehow it just clicked for me as I was listening listening to you talk. Um, I've been you know kind of um, taken with the way that Augustine talks about the mediation of Christ, uh, but as well um, reading a Protestant theologian. Um, uh, T.F. Torrance, who talks a lot about the mediation of Christ as he understands it through Athanasius, um, mm -hmm. and and so we talk a lot about uh, in 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 the Church Fathers in the early Church this kind of idea of Christ as mediator. Um, but yes. it, it, what one thing that you're bringing into light that I hadn't really kind of I don't know at least thought of so explicitly is our roles as imitating Christ as mediator, um, mm -hmm. and our roles as imitating Christ and mediating creation, um, and so 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 Christ becomes uh, human, um, uh, so that humans might become divine, as Athanasius would say. Uh, there's a sense yes. in which uh, we become more deeply, you know, we allow creation um, to find its own telos, as you've been saying, its own perfection um, by becoming one with the earth in the way that we live and in the way that we are participating um, in the the sort of the life that that doesn't have the spiritual and intellectual um, capacities that we do. It's a, it really is a is a kind of a beautiful synthesis. Um, and mm. and I'll also make a short plug that we're supposed to have Jordan Wood come on and talk a little bit about Maximus the Confessor. Uh, he's got a book coming out with Notre Dame Press, but uh, in uh, Christ is incarnate or. I can't remember what his, the, the title of the book is, but anyway, uh, so we will we will get into more Maximus the Confessor on that. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's just really brought that to light. It's it's such a beautiful um, way of looking at the world. It is. And you brought up, you know, you mentioned Athanasius. Athanasius himself has a very keen sense of this because he speaks of Christ as Logos with a capital mm -hmm. Lambda, if you will. But then also the there's, this, there's the Logoi of all mm -hmm. of creation. And how Adam and Eve, you know, they were created so that by encountering the Logoi in creation, they would contemplatively and, and uh, ascend to the Logos, who is Christ. And, mm -hmm. the, you know, part of the drama of the fall is that by being separated from the capital Lambda Logos, by being separated from Christ through sin, we also then lose our understanding of of all of creation around us. Because mm. if, if they have Logoi with a lowercase lambda, that, which are oriented towards the Logos, towards Christ, then then not only do we not understand the teleology of creation after the fall, because we don't understand that it's supposed to be headed towards Christ, we actually just don't even understand what things are anymore. <laughs> because what they are is bound up with where they're headed. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. Yeah, well, well said. I mean, and we, we had an episode talking about wisdom in Augustine, and, and in order to be wise, uh, we need to understand the one wisdom um, is another, mm-hmm. you know, is another way to kind of think about this um, as well. Yeah, it's it's a very, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's not the way that I often think about this. And and again, like, I hope for, for the listeners uh, that they're grasping, like, you know, um, it, well, and it can be very easy to kind of make a dichotomy. I mean, I, I think of Augustine's uh, teaching on our, he does some sermons where he talks about Mary and Martha and, and, uh, Mary has chosen the better part, but he doesn't denigrate what Martha does. Um, you know, right. Like it's, it's not that, um, it's not that Martha does something bad, but you know, it can look a little bit like a disjunction, um, that, you know, you know, Mary has the better part because she is contemplating Christ. But I like this vision that sees the way that these are, um, uh, sort of interpenetrating like that, that they're not, um, a, a dichotomy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'd love to cycle back to Thomas Aquinas here um, to explain how they're not a dichotomy. Because probably the Thomistic listeners are like, well, sounds like this guy's gone full Balthazarian, actually. <laughs> um, but but no. So here's here's how Aquinas kind of connects the dots, right? So he, he has this, this understanding of analogy. And it's deeply informed by the debates of the 12th century about the divine unity. And so everybody knows that for Aquinas, right, when you look at creation and you ascend to God an- analogically, you arrive at God as one, not God as three. Anything else would be rationalism, right? Okay. But here's what Aquinas says. says when, he says, well, the, the ratio, the, the nature or pattern of, you know, of every perfection exi- pre-exists in God. Okay. And, and, and Aquinas is well known for thinking that I actually, the, the rationes of individual perfections we, we encounter in creation, in our work in creation, are in God distinctly even if we can't understand how that distinction is made. Um, they're, they're each, they're each, the ratio of each perfection pre-exists in God distinctly. He also, Aquinas also, um, devotes you know, powerful, powerful reflections to the inner life of the Trinity and the, mm. the processions of the Trinity and the missions of the Trinitarian persons, the Son and the Spirit, coming forth from the inner processions in God. Um, and so connecting the inner and the economic Trinity um, in that way. What people don't typically realize is that Aquinas, though, he actually, when, he, when he's talking about the, um, the, under, the doctrine of appropriation, of appropriating individual divine attributes to individual Trinitarian persons, even though the entirety of the Trinity um, possesses these in, in view of the unity of the divine being, he says there exists an association in God himself between certain divine attributes and certain Trinitarian persons in view of the similarity between the ratio of a divine uh, attribute and the nature of a divine procession. Mm. So now this is, this is like crazy abstract. So I'll give an example. Right? <laughs> um, so a great example that Aquinas uses is power. Power is a divine perfection. It's a divine attribute that each, you know, the Father, Son, and the Spirit share equally in, in virtue of their unity in the divine being. But what does it mean to be powerful, right? You know, and, and one of the things that it means for Aquinas to be powerful is to be the principle of things, to be able to do things, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you look in, 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 in the inner Trinitarian processions, right? Okay, so all of the divine persons share the divine being, so they all share the divine power. Sure, but there's only one divine person that is the principle of the other two, and that's the Father. 
And so Aquinas says there's actually an objective sense, an objective similarity between the, the meaning of power and the, 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 in this case, not proceeding of the Father, right? And his being the principle of the other two persons in the Godhead. And so the, this very Thomistic understanding of creation and analogy actually leads into a Trinitarian understanding of, of appropriations and contemplation. Yes, it requires the, the dogmas and the doctrines of the faith informing it. So it requires grace informing it. But once we have grace giving us access to the inner Trinitarian life, there is, Aquinas thinks, this kind of ascent from the contemplation of creation to the contemplation of the Trinitarian persons. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, like you said, it does bring us full circle. Uh, so we began with a little bit of the difference between Balthasarians and Aquinas and, and this idea of the doctrine of analogy. And so uh, it's nice to end there. And uh, do, uh, Jacob, Dr. Wood, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you uh, today and uh a lot to chew on uh so so thanks for coming on uh i will have links up uh to to well have link up to the one article um on so just we just have a new uh web page so i'll put that up on the web page uh and link to your book and then hopefully when the new one comes out i can link to that as well fantastic thank you so much it's a pleasure as always